The thing he really imparted to me was how you put others before yourself. One of his neighbors witnessed, you know, what he was doing, and he said, how do people learn to be sacrificial? And I said, I have no idea. All I know is I learned it from my parents. Mm -hmm. I saw them in action. That's the best way to do it. Seniors to seniors, whether a senior in college or senior in your mature years, the common denominators of every stage of life is explored as host Robert J. LaCosta interviews seniors about how they got to where they are and how they are continuing to crush it in their mature years. LaCosta is known as the senior editor because he has interviewed seniors for the past three decades and is perhaps the longest running writer in this narrowest of niches. This podcast affords him the opportunity to pass along the same sagely wisdom that he has received from elders and has admired during his 30s, 40s, 50s, and now. LaCosta is a board-certified hearing instrument specialist who has helped over 10,000 seniors overcome hearing impairment. He draws deeply from the intimacy and privilege of those relationships. And now, it's time for The Age Sage. Well, hello. I'm Robert LaCosta. Here with me today, Don Faust. Faust. Yes. I should get that right. Good German it's not, name. It's not an Italian name. You have to understand. Oh, I understand. You know, if it was Ciccarelli, I, you know, 18 syllables, I might get it right. Don and I are in upstate New York in Glenville. Glenville, New York. Glenville, New York is just, uh, I guess, northwest of Albany, New York, the capital. Yes. We're a few hours north of Manhattan, New York City, and we're in his workshop. And this workshop has some very, very special meaning, which we'll get into. But Don, uh, first, would you just tell us a little bit about your background? Because you didn't grow up at a lathe and (laughs) thought this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life. That's right. So So I grew up in central Pennsylvania and uh, went to school to study chemistry and got my doctoral degree in chemistry and worked for General Electric for 28 years in their research and development does anybody do that anymore? 28 years, that's a In long. one place, that's, uh, <laughs> that may be a record. And I was, I, I tell people that I had eight different jobs, but I never moved from the research center because there were so many different problems to solve, and I would move from problem to problem. And during that time, I, I ended up with, uh, must have been about 48 patents. Well, you, you're a boss's delight. I got a problem. Uh, uh, Don. <laughs> yeah. And so you'd, what's, what's kind of interesting about research and development is once you solve the problem, you put yourself out of a job and you move on to the next job or the next problem. And that's what gets your blood flowing. Yes. Solving things, seeing things uh, come to completion. Sometimes they would end up in, in new products. Sometimes uh, it would end up where we build a new factory. So all different results from that work. It's pretty rewarding. It was. You're not one of these engineers who actually does something for 20 years and ends up on a shelf. Your, That's, your, your patents actually got into the mainstream in of use. GE's lineup. Yes. So at age 60, 
I retired and uh, still continued to do consulting work for GE and some of its uh, upstart companies. But I needed something to occupy my time. And my father had taught me woodworking, especially like refinishing furniture and things like that when I was younger. And that's something that I turned to. And how did this transition into what you're doing now? Let's not keep the audience in suspense. Can we see one of the birds? Can I just... Lean over my shoulder here. This is in the rough stage. Yes. But uh, we'll show them one in a more finished state. Right. So these... So how did this? How did the idea of getting back into woodworking transition into making right. birds? So I would say about 30 years ago, uh, after my father had retired, he also got back into woodworking and he started making something called comfort birds. And these were something where you could hold them in your hand and along with every comfort bird came a, a, a passage from Matthew where, just to sort of summarize, if God will take care of the birds, take care of the birds in the sky, what do you have to worry about, you know? He's kind of got the whole world in his hand. <laughs> and they talked about a bird in the hand. But what he found with these, these were very smooth, fit into your hands. A lot of people that were going through chemotherapy at the time would hold on to these things like you would rosary beads or mm -hmm. worry beads or something like that. Mm -hmm. But you hold the bird in your hand, you think about that Bible passage, and, you know, it's like, you know, you're in God's hands here. Mm -hmm. And so my father must have made over 4,000 of these over the course of his lifetime. And he would do two things with them. He would either give them away or he would sell them at a nominal fee and donate. Nominal them. is the operative word here. We're talking $10. $10. For something in a gift store that would probably go for 50 to 100 and he raised over $30,000, $10 at a time, by selling these. So my father passed away in February, and I had helped him over the last few years after my mother had passed away. He was living independently for eight years. He passed away when he was 91. He was still out mowing the lawn on this tractor uh, last summer. But I would, I would come and visit him and I would learn from him, almost apprentice from him, on how to make these. So once he passed away and I was the only son, all of his woodworking tools in his shop came to me, but I had no place to put it. So I ended up purchasing a shed, uh, which you see here now, and moved all of his tools here with me. And I've now kept the tradition going, making the birds that uh, using the design and all the techniques that my father had come up with. We'll get in into a minute some of the testimonies that your, your dad has had. But my specialty is interviewing seniors. And it's amazing to me that God doesn't make mistakes in the aging process. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people think he does. Okay, That's where we get into uh, euthanasia. That's where we get into seeing people say, um, well, we'll just put these seniors out to pasture, get them into a nice house or uh, assisted living or beyond that long-term care facility. But God used your dad greatly in his post-retirement years. Oh, he did. He did. So... One of the things that fascinates me about that seventh decade or thereabouts and after is that people go through a change. 
and they have to face that change while their body is changing as well. Your dad had some heartaches with regard to his body, yes, which we will talk about, the irony of having carpal tunnel as a woodworker. But one of the things that's just absolutely amazing is that your father faced carpal tunnel with some courage, but it actually brought him in a different direction. So instead of making one thing in his wood shop, he transitioned into something that would be simpler on his hands, and that ends up being... The comfort bird. That's right. So I always like to tell the story that my father started large and went small. So in the 50s, he built the house that we lived in, okay? (laughs) And then in the 60s, he would refinish the kitchen. He'd do the cabinetry and, and things like that. In the 70s, after my sister and I had moved off to college, my mother and father were always into serving others. That was the time of the Vietnamese boat people. They took in a family because they had extra rooms, and the family lived with them for a couple of years till they could get on their own. As the uh, 80s came and my father then retired, he and my mother would, would do I would call it missionary work. He would go to, let's see, I know he went to the Dominican Republic. He went to Mexico. He went to Nicaragua and helped build churches there. But he would also do things at home. In other words, uh, if there was a flood or something and a church was damaged, he would go with a group of men who were retired, and they would refurbish the church. In the 90s, uh, Hurricane Andrew came along, and uh, he and my mother got an RV, went to Miami, spent the winter there. My mother cooked for the workers, and my father was putting roofs on He specifically bought an RV for the disaster relief work? He had an RV, but but it was never used this intensely. Uh You would go on a trip or something. But now it was six months in an RV. Well, let's stop there for a second. That's something that we talk about a lot is uh, golf courses, retiring to Florida, (laughs) which is ironic that it was down in Florida. You know, the second homes, travel, not that any of that is bad, but it just seems ironic that most people retire by an RV so they can just go out and explore the world. Your dad gets an RV and puts it to use in Florida, but not to sit around a golf course or a beach. That's right. He, he went to help somebody. So that's that's a, a different spin on an old retirement RV story. Yep. And sort of speaking of homes, uh, where we lived in Pennsylvania, it was uh, two two doors down from a hospital. And the hospital wanted to expand. And they were buying up all of the houses on the street. There were four houses there. Mm-hmm. And what they're going to do is to turn it into a parking lot. They were going to demolish all the houses. Here, my father had put all of this work into his home, but it was also a time when he and my mother had been working with Habitat for Humanity. Mm-hmm. So he made a deal with the hospital and the Habitat for Humanity that he would sell them the house, the property, but they would pick up the house and move it to a new site for another family. Oh. That way, all of that work wouldn't be lost. So why wouldn't he move into the house? He uh, he wanted a new place. It okay. was a two-story house, 
he wanted to move into a one-story house. Sure. So, and and it was a way to give sure. to to someone else. They got the power company to come in for free and and put the lines down. The police to drop traffic. They got a group of uh, Amish to, to come in and knew how to to move buildings. And uh, now a new family has that home. It was never destroyed with the other three on the block. And there was a lot of love put into that home. (laughs) All right. So I still find it fascinating that God used the very thing, the carpal tunnel, which if you see all the metaphors in there, you know, he's got problems with his hand. He creates a bird that fits in a hand. Carpal tunnel is pain. Yes. The bird actually helps with pain. It's just amazing. And not only that, some people might have said, oh, I got to give up. Well, the doctor said I have carpal tunnel. I got to give up woodworking. That wouldn't have been your dad. No, no. So some of the other projects he had done before were like carving ducts, you know, making it smaller and smaller each time. Finally got down to the bird size. Yeah. And uh, he was the ultimate problem solver. He could figure out how to make these, how to make them quickly, how to use different woods and things like that. And someone in the local paper had written a story about this. And then this got picked up by a wood carving magazine in about 2011. And from that one article, he heard from people across the country and around the world. For some reason, they were attracted to this, as as sort of said, they flocked to this <laughs> to this little bird. Well, one other thing that's fascinating about the wood carving magazine's article is that um, Frank was not afraid to share his recipe. Actually, he didn't own this vision. He shared the vision. He actually put the specific instructions or gave it to the woodworking magazine so that wood carvers around the world could know how to make comfort birds. So right now we have no idea how many people are out there making comfort birds, but we do know that people are being comforted. That's correct. So while he affected, you know, maybe a thousand people, a couple thousand people through the birds that he made, I would track articles on the internet by just googling the word comfort bird. If you do that today, pages and pages of stories come out about retired in Iowa that are making these and giving them away, or people down in Tennessee who trees would come down in a hurricane or a, or a uh, uh, tornado, they would take the trees, make birds out of them, and give them to the families who were being affected by this. Again, the irony here is that something out of pain, a tornado, a, a traumatic event, yes. like you know, a hurricane or whatever, families don't ever forget that, and yet something good. <laughs> so there, there are hundreds of individual carvers out there making this bird now, and, and dozens of clubs. We were contacted by a woman in Australia who was helping cancer patients, and she was saying she's now using this design and this concept to make comfort birds for people in Australia. But Canada, England, Korea, all sorts of places. And who knows how many species of woods, I mean, how many different types of woods are there in the world? Who knows? But <laughs> and and if you go to Korea or China or the Middle East, there's got to be all sorts of different wood. We we've got to get a look at some of the different finished uh, yes. ones so they can see how differently the same bird can look 
if it's in different wood. And he, he ended up making <clears throat> birds from over 300 different types of wood. That's just remarkable. And the thing that still amazes me is that he wasn't worried about a copyright, a patent, a trademark, no. anything like that. All he wanted to do was share. That's right. So just like he shared in missionary work, helping people out, helping churches out, now he's helping out other wood carvers. My father grew up in the Depression. He was born in 1929. Almost three days after Wall Street collapsed, my father was born. <laughs> and the world needed him, let me tell you. There you go. And his the thing that real, he really imparted to me was kind of service and sacrifice. How you put others before yourself. And uh, one of his neighbors witnessed you know, what he was doing, and he, and he said, how do people learn to give to others? How do they learn to be sacrificial? And I said, I have no idea. All I know is I learned it from my parents. Mm-hmm. I saw them in action. Yeah, that's the best way to do it. But what his father did was remarkable. You know, Don, you and I were with somebody just the other day, and she mentioned that it just f- felt like perfectly in her hand, mm-hmm. a burden hand. I mean, it, you can actually see that. In this case. So why don't you describe the different styles and the different okay. woods just as a way of an example. Sure. We so obviously this, can't go through 300 different types of wood. Sure. So this this bird was the style my father originally started with. And to me, it kind of looks like a house wren. And he moved more to this style, which I call a sparrow. Um, a little larger, a little different design on the head. Why he changed, changes change. It just <laughs> He liked the way the head felt a little more on this one. But maybe he had a bigger hand, and this is more for a woman. Who knows? Maybe, maybe it is. But uh, Now, what about the woods themselves? Okay, so this wood is called bloodwood. Uh, you get a, a, a nice red, orange color out of it. There's very little grain to it. And it's reminiscent of a cherry. Yes. Cherry wood. And it's gorgeous. This wood now has a lot more grain to it. You can almost, it's its yellow in color. It almost kind of glistens. And this is from what I almost consider to be a weed. It's from the sumac. Unbelievable. This one is, is very, very light. And uh, this one is, is much more dense. But God can use the foolish things of the earth to confound the wise. You got a sumac, which would be a throwaway, and look at the beauty in that. And the contrast is incredible. So if you're trying to picture 300 different pieces of wood, could I I grab one of these here? Sure. So why don't you kind of just explain a little bit about wood? The wood that's used here, my father started with a 2-inch by 2-inch by at least a foot long piece of wood. He had a pattern that he would draw out on this. He'd cut it out on a bandsaw. And I'll sort of explain a little later here how how it was sort of ground down to do this. Now the woods come in uh, wet and you have to dry them. And again, my father being the problem solver, how do I know when wood is dry? There are some gadgets you can buy to measure wood thickness, but he would put it on a scale and every day weigh it and watch the weight go down. And when the weight stopped going down, the wood was dry. And a guy like me would have lived three, uh, two or three lifetimes and never thought of something that ingenious, simple, simple. solved the problem. 
There you go. Problem solved. I, I will say this, that having been through uh, the dead end of going to Minwax for all sorts of color, oil, I guess oil and water-based stains, and never, ever getting it right, it would have been better just to go with <laughs> the, the wood to begin with. <laughs> that was one of the things that my father always insisted on. He would never stain the wood. He always wanted kind of the natural beauty of the wood to come out. And again, the, the, the metaphors are plenty here. I mean, you know, um, God doesn't change this. He uses it as it is. That's right. And he'll use something simple uh, to be of great beauty. And if you think about it, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. So there's no way your dad would have known that Mrs. Smith would have liked that one and Mrs. Jones would have liked that one. And, and that was something that always frustrated him. Which was, I don't know what people like. <laughs> up, up. That's an unanswerable question. <laughs> okay. I could have I could have saved him some time. <laughs> because I have thirty different birds here and they they were attracted to number seventeen, but not, not to number sixteen. But I like number three. Well I'd say who knows? Just why that's a life. Why why does uh, you know my wife love green and I love purple. Why does one person like, uh, you, you know, Pavarotti and the next person likes Justin Bieber? We, we don't know. We just, we, we can see through these birds, though, that the individual aspect of it, the preference, whatever that preference was, would add to the comfort that the person feels because yes. they've already enjoyed that. It's almost like, uh, well, I like lakes, you like rivers, that person likes ocean. That particular bird, that particular color just fits into the person's soul. There you go. And there, thereby the comfort, thereby... Uh, you know, the uh, the other thing that your dad, I'm sure, picked up on, and you have too, is that pain doesn't necessarily go away. Pain can increase. Pain can lead to death. And yet, he, he kept on doing it, and he was, somehow or another, he was part of the ultimate healing. He was making birds up to 10 days before he passed away. I mean... It was it was that much. Now my sister tells the story that my father had told her he knew time was coming mm-hmm. because he said, you know, I'm I'm getting tired of making birds, oh. and so he knew the end was coming, uh, but he still kept going. He yeah. still kept going, and then he was in God's hands. There you go. What a transition. Um, so tell us a little bit about. Uh, your transition into retirement and what were some of the things you, you went through so i retired early at age 60 that's pretty early yep first of all the the decision why 60 was it just a technical thing uh, you know it was, it was more of a financial thing okay ge would give you yeah. early retirement package sure so that's typical of many people. Yep. Okay, my, so then take it from there. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story again. I'll go back to my father. Yeah. Why he retired at age 60. This was a time when uh, the business he was working at was downsizing. Uh-huh. And my father worked in an office. He was, a, as you call it, an estimator. Here's a project that comes in. What do you need for materials? Yeah. What's it going to cost? How long is it going to take? Yeah. So he did that uh, most of his life, but they were going to downsize that operation. Mm-hmm. His boss came to him and said, I, I know you're in your late 50s, 
I've got an option for you here. If you go back onto the shop floor and work on making wooden molds for the iron castings that we do, you won't be let go. And so my father said, you know, it's it's like, how do I get to 60 and out? Yeah. And he said, I, I, I will take you up on this. And yeah. so he left his nice air-conditioned office job mm-hmm. to go yeah. out onto the foundry floor and uh, make it to 60. And, and, uh, and I think he always looked at his job as a way to provide for his family, but it wasn't his, how can you say? Passion or? He enjoyed it, but yeah. it, it wasn't the focus of his life. It's sure. something that you, you need to do yeah. to, to provide. Yeah. He had all of these other outside activities that he wanted to work on. He was, it was about time, grandchildren coming along, things like that. So uh, uh, he retired at 60. And I kind of looked at that and said, I can see that. I, I, I love the work I was doing as a chemist. Yeah. But there was more to life than that. And when you're as passionate about chemistry as you are, and then it's gone, you know, one day you step out of the lab, that lab, and you go into the lab of retirement. What was what were some of your first impressions not having a sp- specific project like that to work on anymore? There, there was an empty spot in my life. Uh, but I took up gardening. and uh, Would you say you did that immediately? I did that immediately, yeah. I didn't really, like, go into this... Uh, sit around and watch things. Yeah. You know, there were a lot of projects that just hadn't been worked on for a while. And it also gave me time to to go and help my father, who was now uh, uh, in his 80s. So mm-hmm. there, there were lots of other things to do. Now, I, I, I never gave up on kind of the knowledge base that I had because I, I would consult for General Electric and I would consult for a uh, a new upstart company, but that was more when I f- felt like doing it, as mm-hmm. opposed to nine yeah. to five every day. It was yeah. when I needed to do it. So, yeah. so I never really left chemistry, but it went from being the thing that you had to do every day to mm-hmm. something that, if you wanted to do it, you could do it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you you feel like your transition was fairly smooth. Yes. You didn't go into any lull. You didn't go into any uh, depression about um, missing the position that you had because your identity wasn't really in the position. That's correct. That's correct. Do you, th- do you think that's a problem with some other people, though? Have you experienced that with anybody else? I, I always felt sorry for the kind of the generation before me. I, I remember a mentor at, at GE who was there. He must have been about 60. Before mm-hmm. the time I met him, renowned physicist, he retired at 65, mm-hmm. and at age 65 and a half, he passed away. Mm-hmm. That was that was to me that was very sad. I've I've heard that on a number of accounts, and that, and I think that would go though across generations. It, it really has to do with the person having the sense that there's another, just another phase to life. And I can understand if someone has something that they're just passionate about and this next phase of their life just isn't going to be as much as rewarding or as much fun. Yep. But I have heard that a lot. 
Uh, wrapping up here, though, if um, someone wants to get in touch with you, learn about, it, it wouldn't even have to be Comfort Birds. It could be some, some project that, they, there might be another Frank out there who, who just kind of stumbles along, uh, you know, and, and stumbles onto something. I wouldn't even call it stumble. I, I feel it's a progression. I feel if you're courageous enough and you do something, God tends to open up a door and then something else opens up and then something else opens up. Never in his m- a million years would a Frank have thought that there would be hundreds, maybe thousands of people that he was literally a model for. That's right. I always, the, the analogy I always like uh, from the New Testament is the mustard seed. The smallest little thing, that, that mustard seed, can go into a huge, huge tree. And that's what I kind of view this, this comfort bird thing yeah. was. It's, it's a seed was planted, and you're looking at the result of it now. Yeah, and we don't even know where that's, it's going to go from go. here. Um, um, you know, a mustard seed doesn't have a mirror, but we do. And we look in the mirror and we say, mm. but God sees something that in 20 years is going to take a different shape in that mirror. And I think this is just a fantastic uh, example of how a person can use their refirement years for God's glory. Don, tell everybody about you, uh, the website and how they can get in touch. Sure. With with the help of my technical astute son <laughs> the whiz kid they, he knows that stuff <laughs> i don't we set up a website the comfort birds all one word dot com i think that's pretty simple and in there this i really put this site together for for three purposes one was there's a section on there of how to make the birds and i show pictures of my father working through the process two is kind of all the press clippings from other carvers who are taking this concept concept and putting their own spin on it. So there are stories of others that have been affected by this. And then finally, there are, are pictures of all the birds my father had made, and then what kind of an inventory I have if you would like to purchase a bird. And, and oh, I was going to go, say, go uh, all of the proceeds uh, go to the city mission of Schenectady. This is a faith-based mission uh, to help the uh, the community in Schenectady, the homeless, the addicted, um, and and uh, all of the proceeds go there. And that particular ministry, I can vouch for because I know that they're trying to help people help themselves. Yes. It's it's a remarkable a remarkable ministry. Don, I'd just say thank you. I hope <laughs> I hope you can keep up with the orders because I have a feeling there's going to be an avalanche. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Okay. 